Thank you very much, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Cybercast. I know it's been a while. My guest today is Dr. Srinivas Mukamala, the CEO and founder of RiskSense, now the Senior Vice President of Security Products for Avanti. Shri, thank you very much. How are you doing? Pretty good, Tom. Thank you for having me. Looks like it's going to be a fun episode today. Oh, we're gonna have we're gonna have a lot of fun. We've got we've got so many things to talk about. We've got a we've got a good partnership underway. We've got your background to dig into as someone who's done some really cool things in the cyber world. So, you know, let's let's get into it. So let let me first ask, you've got you've got a background in intrusion detection, cyber, you know, countering cyber terrorism. I'm super fascinated by this. Give me the, give me sort of like the give me sort of like the whole scope of how'd you how'd you start to get into that because that's an awesome entree into like the cybersecurity vendor world. Absolutely, I mean uh, it's a fun month to be in October, right? I was born in October. To only realize it's a cyber awareness month, and I'll be a cyber security researcher. So think about that's this. right. Think have right. I have I missed your birthday though? No. So it's 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 an, it's October thirteenth. So okay. it's good, right? No, it's, it's uh, I'm an accidental cyber researcher, right? Or a cyber scientist. Like any dreamer from India came to this country to pursue my advanced degree. So however, had a very, very rare opportunity to work on neural networks with Indian space research. It was quite an honor to learn neural networks for a flight trajectory. Came to the US, went to a school in the middle of nowhere called New Mexico Tech. I mean, some of you will know for the fond memories of what tech has done over the years, right? I mean, we are the best astrophysics school in the world. We have the second brightest telescope on earth. We monitor every tsunami on earth. So the interesting piece, what led me to tech was the research they were doing on real-time Linux at the time. It was a professor by the name of Victor Yurikin. So by the time I got there, he left and I had an opportunity to meet my advisor, Andrew Sung, and also John Louis Lasse, who was considered the father of logic programming. So that turned my entire perspective into what is that I want to do? Started in bioinformatics because my father is a medical doctor, wanted to do something in cancer, did that for three weeks. Went into petroleum recovery. New Mexico Tech is one of the best in petroleum recovery in the world. Hmm. Applied neural networks there. Didn't like it. And then my professor said, hey, United States Department of Defense is looking for graduate students who can apply neural networks for large-scale computer intrusions. To be honest with you, I don't even know what an intrusion was. All I knew was neural networks. I was very good at computer networks. I was a sysadmin. I was good at systems. Then I started learning, okay, how do I apply what a routine task would be to see if I can model neural networks? This is August of 2000. I mean, when nobody even knew how to spell neural networks right. So my professor challenged me and said, hey, everybody talks about neural networks. I still believe neural networks is the right thing to do. And that's what the government wants. But we also have an opportunity to be bold. So one thing I learned in bioinformatics was the use of support vector machines. When you have to deal with incomplete data sets, sparseness, 
and higher dimensionality. Then I started applying support vector machines to intrusion detection data and made some very bold claims saying that support vector machines are better when it comes to data sets that are incomplete, that's of higher dimension, we have a lot of variables, and cybersecurity should absolutely be looking at SVM. So to me, that was my contribution to the field. 20 years later, Tom, it's funny to go back and look at it. SVMs are predominantly one of the widely used ML methods in cybersecurity today. I'm just 20 years ahead because my fortunate association with my mentors and my advisors. So that's my contribution. That's how I started. From the middle of nowhere in India, in the middle of nowhere in the United States, it's the opportunity that the United States government gave me to really come up with an alternate method for machine learning other than neural networks. So that's the beginning of my journey. That's really cool. Like when you think about support vector machines too. I mean, I haven't heard that term. And I mean, you're, you're obviously a lot smarter than I am because I'm just a marketing guy, but like, I haven't heard that term forever. Like that is actually like the first time I've heard that in years. Give it like, can you, can you drill down in, into that? Like as it relates and like the context with, um, with neural networks? No, absolutely. Right. So when you look at cybersecurity, one of the interesting challenges we look at when you're looking at ML or AI, it's the data sets. It's the freshness of the data. It's the completeness, the variety, the volume, right? At the velocity at which we can acquire the data. So the interesting aspects there are neural networks are pretty good when you have real good complete data sets, right? I mean, it'll work well. And scale also is an issue. So we're talking 20 years ago. Today, I mean, nothing matters, right? We have improved quite a bit when it comes to modeling. The interesting part with support vector machines, one of the forcing function for us to look at support vector machine is really scale. At the time, we didn't have complete data sets. Data was a very, very hard problem to get. We were working with an MIT data set, which was shared for several researchers. So there, the dimensionality of that, in this case, the dimensionality means the unique variables we look at to either do a classification problem, right? Good, bad. And we had a taxonomy of reconnaissance slash probing, denial of service, remote to local and local to administrator. Funny, this was the taxonomy we used to use to classify intrusions. Today, in sense, or matter of fact, any exploit, we call them remote code execution, privilege escalation, a denial of service attack, right. just standard probing, right? So the taxonomy hasn't changed. And the SVM's evolution was to deal with when you have multiple variables to look at and actually build these classification engines. So that's really why we started looking at SVMs to really once scale well, address the curse of dimensionality and also look at the incompleteness within the data set and yet get good performance results. It's a, it's all about the data. Now, like when you think about neural networks tree and you think about some other, like some other technologies that, that kicked off that really were influential technologies for the landscape of, of cyber innovation that's out there right now today. What do you think about something like, you know, we've heard a lot about quantum computing too. When you think about like quantum's kind of been around for a while, 
where does that factor into like just building out just algorithms and building out just all kinds of cool stuff that that could be at some point influential in the cyber world to help you know to what you were just referring to as scale speed velocity and accuracy at the same time absolutely right tom i mean we were just 20 years ahead of the game right funny enough you say that and if you look at my dissertation it's computational intelligent agents for large-scale intuitions that's my doctorate I did about 120 publications on different variations of using ML methods, right? And quantum computing is exactly in that boat as well. As we mature on how we look at different methods, it's all about compute methods, right? And then we're gonna start looking at evolution coming. Are we there yet today? No, will we be there? Absolutely, right? The history has said that enough and enough, and funny enough, when I go back and reflect on agents, I used to tell people I will never do an agent based anytime soon. And I go end up with a company, all it does is agents, right? <laughs> or, so, I mean, look at endpoint agents, right? Or for a matter of fact, some of the companies I admire, whether it's a CrowdStrike or a Carbon Black, or it's a Sentinel One, or even Cyber Reason, it's the real estate that makes them extremely powerful. You're, EDR, MDR tools, right? Dollar agent base. And I'm like, I said, I will never ever touch an agent, agent again. And today, 20 years later, agents are the ones that are, you know, really ruling the market. Right. Right. No, they, they truly are. Well, it's interesting too, because when you think about what you have, what you have done, Give us a little, um, give us a little insight into how did RiskSense come about, right? Because you guys had a lot, you know, you had some, you had some VC backers. Um, it was kind of a, it was a space that definitely was an addressable market for sure. Uh, definitely addressing some substantial challenges. Give us an idea of how RiskSense came to light. Absolutely. So in this journey at New Mexico Tech and the United States government supporting us on solving some hot problems, 9-11 happened. And when 9-11 happened, we were in two active wars, Iraq and Afghan. So the government was very interested in understanding is cyber being used as a tool to recruit insurgents? Right. Are they using cyber to really advance their strategy, right? So the government wanted us to do a project called Cactus, computational analysis of cyber terrorism against the United States. The charter was, let's take a look at offensive computing and defensive computing. We played both offense and defense. Cool. The offense was, the government wanted to look at which vulnerabilities can we write exploits to and how lethal will that exploit be? I mean, the definition we use is called weaponization, right? And we had a chatter to start looking at different weaponization methods. We did steganography, right? Embedding code into images, videos, right? And we did a lot of interesting stuff in looking at how do you take down pacemakers, medical devices? How do you embed exploits into your printers, your copiers? So some, we did some very interesting work on taking exploits, embedding them into non-traditional compute devices to really just cool. see, to see what we can do. That allowed us to look at the offensive side. On the defensive side, 
we started looking at if an enemy had to have this exploit, what he or she can do. And we followed the same taxonomy I talked about, RCE, PE, download service attacks and probing, right? And we modeled everything around that. So while we were doing that work, we learned a lot. We started looking at one of our very good works was called SAVE, Static Analysis of Vicious Executables. This is 2004, I still remember. I gave a talk at UC Berkeley talking about how can you use simple distance measures like Cosine, Pearson, and Jarkin between two executable, two executables and say how similar they are. What we were studying there was how two pieces of malware are so similar to avoid signature-based detection. Today, that's a big deal, right? I mean, you talk about behavioral polymorphism. We did several papers on that. So I'll talk about that was way too boring, sandboxing, malware, and all that. Again, mm -hmm. that's a multi-billion dollar industry today. So these are, you're early to the market, you are a researcher, but you never had that commercial bent in it. What right. excited me the most was this weaponization. Can I use weaponization to make money out of that? That's the spark I had. While we served enough for the government, everybody was getting excited about our work Right, we were getting asked, can you break into a pacemaker? Can you break into a hospital? And we, we started doing red teaming. We made a business out of that. We said, you know what? We're done with the gunmen. We're getting money, but can we actually go make a business out of it? And we found some interesting early adopters of saying, guys, come and do the same thing. Test if you are resilient to a cyber attack, right? If we were to defend ourselves, what we should be doing. So we started automating vulnerability management and vulnerability scans. We would run an SS at the time and we had Qualys as well. There was no sense of application security. This was 2007, 2008. So what we started doing was simple aggregation of the data, removing the dupes, correlating it and taking the exploits and showing them which vulnerabilities you should really remediate. So that was done as an incubation and a service or the university more for fun than anything else. And we started doing master's projects, PhD dissertations out of that. Then I decided, wow, I did my tour for the government. I did my tour as a researcher. I taught classes, 18 PhDs under me. I said, it's time to take care of myself. And that's when the whole concept of Resense came in and we formed a company in 2015. Super cool. That, that's awesome. You know, what's, you know, what's interesting is I did my, like you followed an extremely cool path that has just kind of built one on top of the other. And like with innovation being, in my opinion, sort of like the single thread through all of it, Sri, I actually did, fun fact, I actually did my uh, my master's thesis on, um, on Islamic radicalism. Because at the time I was, you know, I was sort of, I worked for a couple of different PR firms. I was still kind of early in my career and 9-11 happened and I decided I wanted to go into counterterrorism. And then I ended up meeting my wife and getting married. And that kind of, you know, kind of shot down me going and working for the State Department and going overseas, um, basically to be a spy. So that was kind of like, you know, I'm very happy with my career, but that was that was where I was going with my with my master's thesis. Fun fact, I'll have to I'll have to give you a copy of it sometime to look at. Maybe we can compare and uh, look at some look at some cyber element of it because it's obviously what I've spent most of my career on now is cyber as well too. But super, super, super cool stuff. Now, like 
when you think about you started RiskSense in 2015, now you've got a company that's funded. Now you're going to go like, just like bring this to the market. And you guys definitely achieved some, some market scale and some market share at risk sense that obviously culminated, you know, just a couple of months ago in an acquisition by Avanti, but walk us through kind of what it was like just starting to build that company. It's a, it's a great question, Tom. I mean, like every founder, we have our ups and downs. It's a great journey, I would say. I mean, I'm very thankful for my team, my investors and my customers, right? Customer is the king, cash is the emperor or cash is king, customer is the emperor, right? Whichever one you want to use. So we were working pre-recense as well, right? So the trigger for us to get out and do it was Kenna. So we were doing this since 2008 as more of an incubation. In 2011, Kenna started as a small company called Honey Labs, if I remember correctly, then Risk.io, then Kenna Security. So we were dabbling as a service. We said, well, somebody is bold enough to go raise capital. I, I still believe after their seed round, Kenna raised money from USA Ventures. I mean, they funded Imperva, they funded Checkpoint and all that, some mm-hmm. heavyweights in the market. That's when it dawned on me, you know what? We can't be kidding ourselves here. If you're serious about building a company, let's go spin it out and form a real company. Though we were working in parallel or a little earlier, somebody went to the market first to prove a point that this is a space we're going to be in. And then, of course, Rissens and Kenna were always head on head, right? Competing. They had a better skill than us. They raised a lot more money than we did. Mm-hmm. It's also the pedigree that matters, right? They were operators. And, you know, we are all our academicians. So the industry doesn't reward academicians, right? For what's worth it. They want you to have the practicum, not the theoretical. They always looked at it as, these guys are great academicians, but can they really solve a problem? So we had an uphill battle or a headwind. So that's when we got an opportunity to use our government network because we were in the government for a long time. Paladin Capital realizes the entrepreneurs who work for the government, who worked within the government and the kind of work we do. So for record too, right? Chris Engel was one of the advisors of Paladin Capital, now uh, President Biden's uh, cybersecurity czar. So mm-hmm. Paladin Capital has some of the best cybersecurity advisors, all coming from the United States Department of Defense. So they saw this as an opportunity to really groom us, mold us, and invest in us. So that's how it started. So Paladin was our first outside capital. And then Immediately, CenturyLink, now Lumen Technologies, was a strategic because we didn't have a go-to-market and we wanted a telco to help us launch in the market. So those two forces came together and we were able to put our money together. The interesting challenge is when you take outside capital, it's a very different journey. We didn't have any metrics. We didn't have go-to-market. We didn't have marketing. We didn't have sales. All we had was engineering. We didn't even have a product function to be honest with you. And we had a bunch of pen testers. That's our org. <laughs> so, so we were like, what do you mean by a board metric? I mean, I was so funny. I didn't even know what would a board deck be. So then my advisor said, okay, this is how a board deck looks like. And I started reading first round capital, an amazing Max 
Sadler. I mean, amazing, amazing way to understand how do you handle a board? I started reading, what would a metric be? What should I present? We didn't even have Salesforce. Then we went and purchased Salesforce. We got an administrator to help us. We didn't have a CFO. We brought in a part-time CFO to help us. It's kind of very interesting to go back and look at the journey. You might be street smart, but you really haven't done an organization. So we learned it on the job. It was not fun. So 16, 17, 18, it took us three years to figure out, okay, we need a team from a go-to-market. We need marketers. We need sales. We need a product management function. We need a CFO. It took us three years to figure out how do you actually build an org? We're always good at tech, but we never had an organization that would scale. Then we got to a scale. We always had some very, very fortunate customers, right? We were very strong in the government. We have several states as our customers today, statewide. We have several fortune companies as our customers. We have several partners who believe in us. In 2018, of course, you go through the first run and you make enough mistakes. We, we recycle the entire exact team. I mean, naturally, right? Whoever is there for the C and the A might not scale all the way to the B. And as a founder, I had to go through all that stuff. I survived that change. And we had the team and then we started chugging along. We raised our A, we raised our B. And during our B, I was fortunate enough to raise money from Dave DeWalt. So Dave was one of the founders. I mean, is the CEO of McAfee, FireEye. Mm -hmm. But more than Dave, I was fortunate to have Raymond Wong from SMC Capital. He was a true gentleman and a great addition to my board bringing in the wealth of experience from Merrill Lynch and wherever we are. I call adult supervision for me from a board perspective, really helped me understand organizational governance. I mean, I did not always need help on the tech side, but I needed always help on the human element. And uh, he was an amazing addition to the board. Then we started growing. We had a nice growth. We were competing, winning, and an offer came in from several inbounds. And finally, we felt the right place for me and the team is Ivanti, because when you look at what Resense does, we help you prioritize vulnerabilities and we tell what to do. Ivanti actually does that. I said, if we can bring these two companies together, this will actually complete my vision as a founder and as a researcher. Plus, it will take this to a global scale because Ivanti is one of the world's largest patch management vendors today Every security company uses their patch as their engine. So this gave me an opportunity to make a difference on a global scale. And now I ended up becoming the SVP of all cyber products. So it allowed me to focus on what I enjoyed, building products and taking them to market and continue to innovate to make sure we're staying relevant in the marketplace and you know, support the mission of stopping breaches, right? So I firmly believe on let's go prevent a breach. Don't wait for a breach to happen to stop it. Let's prevent a breach. What that means is it's a proactive stand. So all in all, it's a good run. And finally, here I am. It, very interesting path. And I think it's, you know, would you, would you point out the where you, where you came from um, where you've been, the the areas that you've studied and the areas that you've become a domain expert in only to go start a, a, a business. I think I think a lot of founders kind of take that same path sometimes or at least something similar where 
The technology is what they understand. The technology is what they live and breathe. And then it's all about like putting the pieces in place around the technology and the development and roadmap of the technology to service enterprise customers, right? And really have a polished have a polished solution or set of solutions for companies. On top of that, getting people in the door to sell it, getting people in the door to market it, getting people to sort of manage that path to maturity around the product as well too. It's de- it's definitely not easy. I mean, this is this has been my seventh startup, and it it is it, it it's a it's a path that has some ebbs and flows, right? Like there's some ups and, and some downs, certainly. No, absolutely. It's been a fun fun ride, all in all, right? So I learned a lot. I mean, it's the tech is not the hardest thing. It's the people side. It's the go to market side. End of the day you get a lot of satisfaction if you can take your tech into the hands of your customer or your consumer. And that's when, as a researcher, I always felt good. Still today, I spend a lot of my time partnering and talking to my customers. I enjoy a very special place with our customers today because I look at this as a journey. I enjoy solving hard problems. When I walk in, the first question I ask is, before I win your business, Help me understand what is your problem statement. And I'm very transparent. I'll tell them we as a team can solve it or we can't solve it. If we can't solve it, I'll tell you, this is who I admire. You should go there. If we can solve it, I'll clearly tell them this is how we do it. That allowed me to really advance and have that professional satisfaction, Tom. Which is, which is important too, because it becomes it almost becomes a personal validation of something that you've put hours of your life and hours of, you know, just, just cycles, not just at work, but nights, mornings, weekends, et cetera, into building something that is being consumed by, you know, thousands of customers at this point today, which is, which is cool, right? Like, it's cool to see like what you've built being used in enterprise security operation centers, right? That's like a, I mean, that's like a huge buzz, right? To be able to look at that and go, yeah, like, you know, like, top, you know, top 50 banks and, and top, you know, top 50 healthcare and pharma and huge government organizations as well, too, who need the most innovative technology on the cyber side. Absolutely. It's supporting the mission, right? I mean, when you look at cybersecurity today, it's becoming an integral part of our lives, whether it's a meat processing company or your gas pipeline or your sewer treatment or your hospitals right? Or your own personal medical devices. You're talking about saving life. You're talking about giving your civil liberties back, your freedom back when it comes to election systems. And I take so much personal pride when I hear, hey, you guys helped us here. I mean, those stories give me that professional satisfaction and also the energy to go back and do more. It's been a fun ride, Tom. For sure. One, one of the things I always say too is I, I'm in cyber because it's not just to protect business and people, but it's like protecting the economy. That we like I don't think we could have imagined an oil pipeline being shut down from a ransomware attack five years ago. Like it just wasn't it wasn't on the table and now it is. And I think this is, you know, this is it it's a constant reiteration or a reaffirmation rather to me being being in cyber for like 20 years now 
it's it's helping protect the the global economy right it has nothing to do with country borders anymore it is because attackers don't do not discriminate in any way shape or form that's usually what i say to people like this is that's why i'm still here like i always feel there's a there's a mission behind what you're doing in in any role in in this industry absolutely we call it an asymmetric warfare right i mean there's a reason for that i mean it's no more a level playing field as an organization, you have to spend millions, in some cases, billions to protect, but all it takes is time and a laptop and an internet connectivity for a bad guy to break your entire moat, right? Your castle is gone. It's, it's scary how smart they are and it's scary how resourceful and sometimes how simply they're able to penetrate systems with methods that have been around like the actual the actual method of a um you know whatever type of technique that you apply for for any for any attack right like a privilege escalation attack i mean it's amazing that but but it still works right it's just like a new twist on the technique once they study the company long enough and i think that's where it's we're starting to see more agile technology and more and certainly more ai and cloud-based technology be more helpful as organizations have kind of transformed digitally. Absolutely. I mean, we haven't even started a digital transformation journey, right? We're just embarking on that. The way, the way we do compute today, the way we run our organizations is going to be completely transformational in the next coming years, which means the cyber, the cyber threats will evolve as well. Yeah, to that point, that was going to be my next question. What's next on the threat landscape in in your eyes? Where give us take us like take us like thirty six months into the future right now because we don't know what's going to happen. What do you what do you see being the the big thing that people are going to be talking about thirty six months down the road? So you'll definitely see some transformative movements, right? We're talking dev first, right? The DevSecOps world. We're talking about deploying daily, right? Your builds and deployments are happening daily. The pace at which we will introduce vulnerabilities is gonna grow exponentially. So what that means is we have to catch the weaknesses we're introducing in the code way, way early enough. We cannot wait for the code should be shipped to be tested and found it. You gotta right. figure that out. So you'll see almost like factory assembly lines, you catch defects on the conveyor belt. You don't even ship with defects pretty much, right? So there'll be a lot of rigor to be focused on security as well. That's one. The second macro trend, this is my personal opinion. We're using a lot of ML in the AI with not true domain experts. The guys who understand the problem statement are not experts in AI. The people who are experts in AI are not domain experts. We're trying to bring them together at a marriage of convenience and build the systems. What I'm afraid of is we're going to start introducing bias. AI bias is going to be a very, very big problem right. for security. And we got to really ensure that it's addressed. And the third thing I live with is AI ethics. AI ethics is a very broad team. team so we talk about security debt, we talk about privacy debt. We already know that there's a lot of AI debt. There are not enough people to build systems. However, AI ethics will become a very important thing. 
it's about data. You're collecting all kinds of data to build your models. And one, you have to secure it. Two, you cannot misuse the data. But in the race of making our Wall Street numbers hit, people, I'm afraid people will cross that line. And we got to really be mindful of that. More domain experts in, in AI and more domain experts in cyber AI. Yes, 100%. I mean, we need to pretty much have joint curriculums where we teach the fundamentals of computer science and ensure that they have exposure to both security and AI and ML. You pretty much need an all-rounder. Yeah, it's it's really, I, I'm hearing more and more of that from people that like, it's really more of a grassroots, a grassroots and educational effort early on for, you know, for those who are going through college or like, you know, going through some type of like a career change, Sri, where they, where I, I know a few people who are, who are getting degrees actually in cyber, who have done all kinds of different things before kind of jumping into cyber. But, you know, it's, the grass isn't always greener on cyber either. It's a, it's a challenging, very difficult profession across the board of any type of role, whether you're a founder you're in marketing, you're in development, you're in product, you're in sales. I mean, it's a very, uh, it's a very competitive overall industry. And I think that a lot of folks who come from, who come from a, an industry that's maybe not as competitive, you know, it's a, you have to be on your A game coming into the cybersecurity industry. Absolutely. I agree hundred percent. So, so this has been so much fun today. What, What's next for what's next for you, Shri? Where like what what's next for you? You're obviously doing some really cool stuff with Avanti. You've got you've got a chance to really put put risk sense on the map in in massive scale style through Avanti, with you know just thousands and thousands of customers worldwide. What's next for you? What do you see? What do you see? What do you see? What is like the next big thing for you? So we are sitting on an in a very envious position, Tom, we have two interesting data sets. I call it a data mode. We have the best patch data today, Ivanti, because they were the ones who started with land desk, heat, shower like, right? They've seen it across multiple heterogeneous environments. Recent, fortunately, because of the work we have done for the government, and what we've been doing, we've collected so much of vulnerability data, mapped it to what's being weaponized, the type of weaponization, which APT groups are using, which ransomware is using. So we're bringing these two data sets together and creating an amazing prioritization. So you can pretty much look at this as a knowledge graph. I can pick a weakness and enumerate what vulnerabilities have been created out of that which exploits took advantage of it and who is actively using. Or I can go backwards and look at a patch and see if I apply this patch, how many vulnerabilities will I remediate? How many exploits will I remediate? How much of the attack surface will I shrink? So that's an amazing place to be in. 90% of the time in cybersecurity, it's the data that matters. So today I, I want to be able to work with my teams, with my old team and my new team to take this to the world. Today we support 200 million endpoints. 
with Ivanti, not only with our ecosystem through our direct sellers and channel, now we're partnering with several cybersecurity companies to share this data, to release that within their products to do what they do the best, whether it's an EDR solution or a vulnerability remediation solution or a cyber insurance company. So we're able to expand into several areas of cyber with our unique data we have. To me, that gives me imminent satisfaction. And I want to see this through. See through in a way that we make a global impact. And God's grace, we'll see what's next. But I want to see this through first. Very, very cool. Yeah, the foot, the, uh, the Avanti footprint is substantial. And, it, and it's definitely an interesting, it's an interesting marriage for sure. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll, We'll all see some of the good stuff that comes out from an innovation standpoint, from a product standpoint. Really cool stuff. And Tree, you have a, thank you for the time today too. Your background is really cool, and uh, I'm glad we got the opportunity to kind of share this with uh, with a broader audience. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Tom. This has uh, been an honor to be here, and uh, thank you for the partnership and the friendship. We appreciate it. I look forward to working with you more, and uh, thank you for joining the podcast, Tree. Thank you, Tom.